Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. We're going to go straight against that grain. Whether or not I've got chocolate on my face from the donut I just ate, just realized, <laughs> forgot to check that. And now I can't look at my, you know, reverse phone camera screen thing without no. everybody seeing me. So just have to no, lick you, frantically and get going. You look good. It's fine. Thank yeah. you. Uh, that's great because we do have a lot to talk about, which we always we say. But today in particular, we yeah. have the Supreme Court just dropping bangers right and left. We are going to get into all of these in some detail tomorrow. Um, but, you know, we've had pretty consequential decisions on uh, religious freedom and, and funding for religious schools. We've had what people are calling uh, really the the demolition of uh, Bivens' decision, which allowed in some cases for federal officers to be prosecuted for violating people's civil rights. We have a ruling today on um, concealed carry for weapons that is probably going to be pretty significant. And we are, of course, still waiting for a decision on abortion rights. And just as you started the introduction, yet another Supreme Court decision came down limiting a person's rights under the Miranda rule. So they've just ruled that if a suspect is not warned about his right to remain silent, he cannot sue a police officer for damages under federal civil rights laws, even if the evidence was ultimately used against him in his criminal. So why have Miranda? Yeah. If the, if the Miranda's not there to protect you. I mean, I guess there's a difference between being able to sue an individual for damages and to be able to say this evidence is inadmissible in my trial. You know what I mean? I guess that's, is that the fine line we're talking about here? I don't know. We seem to be. Hey, yeah, that's why we're going to get a lawyer to talk to us about all of this pretty soon. We have other stuff uh, coming up today. We're going to be speaking with one of our own reporters from Brussels, talking about the EU summit and the upcoming G7 summit. We are going to be talking about what Jerome Powell had to say in front of Congress yesterday and today, uh, and what it means that the BRICS countries are saying they are developing their own currency, their own global reserve currency and an alternate Alternative to uh, IMF yes. uh, funding possibilities, how consequential that could be, it seems like could be a pretty big deal. It, it could be a very big deal, mm -hmm. yeah. You know, somebody asked me just the other day uh, what I thought about uh, uh, what I thought about Lebanon and uh, Lebanon's ability to uh, sort of not fail, yeah. right, as a country. And I said, I'm actually not uh, optimistic. I'm not optimistic. And, uh, you know, whether it's the World Bank that comes through, and believe me, the World Bank usually doesn't come through. The World Bank usually causes more trouble than than countries had before the World Bank moved in. I don't know. What's the alternative? Yeah, well, maybe now it's going to be this new uh, this new lending mechanism, yeah. or this sort of credit system. Yeah. Uh, we are, I think, going to talk about this potential deal to allow Egypt and Syria to provide gas to Lebanon, but yeah. who's who's still got to check all the regs and make sure they're yeah. going to allow it? The World Bank in the United States, not any of those three countries that are going to be trading together. And let me ask you, and maybe Please. you don't even know the answer. I certainly don't know the answer. I understand that if you're asking, if you're asking for, if you've got a country that's under the auspices of the World Bank, 
and other countries want to help, like we're seeing now with Lebanon. Um, I understand that the World Bank has to approve the deal. Fine. Why does the United States have to approve the deal? Why would you ever? I mean, yes, fine. But also, how bizarre yeah. that, you know, that you would have a, a sovereign country right. going to the World Bank saying, hey, please, can I make this decision on right. behalf of my people? And the World Bank will go, I don't know. Uh, we'll have to so, check this out. Yeah, it might not make money for some of our stakeholders in the long run. So, and the, and the statement from the State Department was, you know, as good as you would expect. We look forward to helping the Lebanese people. We look forward to bringing Lebanon back. But and not if it means we can't continue to strangle Syria with our sanctions. Exactly. Exactly. Screw you, Lebanese people. You want to buy gas? Exactly. Too bad. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk more about that later. <laughs> We're going to talk about this housing correction, or is it a crash? We're going to talk about uh, airports, where some of us are heading pretty soon, and how chaotic, <laughs> how chaotic and unpredictable and scary uh, they have been seeming lately. So we we have a lot of that to get to. I want to talk about something that I just learned. It happened on Monday. We have talked on this show, I think, about uh, briefly about California's ballot initiative that passed uh, that I think it passed in 2018. It was going to take effect this year. It was to do with uh, selling pork in California and the state of California decided, hey, look, in this one instance, we don't want to be a destination for products obtained through torture, uh, which is, you know, uh, very accurately what you can call pork production in factory farms in the United States. And so they decided to um, limit the sale, block the sale of pork products that had been uh, raised and created in uh, conditions that the state found inhumane, right? Some of these conditions are, you know, pigs being kept in pens that are too small for them to turn around in. So they're just standing there, stomping all over their piglets, sliding around in their own waist, chomping at bars, uh, you know, until they until they go insane. That's your whole life. That's your whole life as an animal that's uh, smarter than a dog, right? I mean, it shouldn't matter how smart they are, but it's just disgusting. Um, and the state of California and the people of California decided that they were going to try just within their own state to enact some measures to block products that have been produced by that kind of treatment. Uh, the Biden administration on Monday filed a brief siding with the pork industry in its quest to convince the Supreme Court to overturn rulings that California can require pork sold in the state to have been produced under conditions the state dictates. Um, this is a reading from a Fence Post article here. Mm -hmm. So the, the DOJ has come in and said, no, 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 what we really want to do is throw our weight behind, uh, really, I'll say, some of the vilest people on the planet who can look at animals being, um, you know, living their entire lives in conditions like this and go, yeah, that's good. That's good for us to make some more money. And not even our, you know, small farmers or anything, just us sort of executives at the top of these pork producing companies. And of course, you know, what what my uh, some of my lawyer friends would say is that, well, you know, you have the it is the job of the federal government to uphold the Constitution. And the Constitution has things to say about interstate commerce and whose job it is to regulate that, blah, blah, blah. The, this is sort of what the pork producers are challenging California on saying, no, 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 this is this is interstate commerce. You can't you can't do that to us. It's not it's not within your purview to to regulate us in this way. Um, I just think 
it's a terrible, terrible shame that they have decided that they're going to jump in here and try to force the people of California to accept these products that they have decided are unacceptable. And then you have a noted ghoul, Chuck Grassley of Iowa, jumping in to say the administration's doing the right thing. They're supporting the family farmer. They're not. No, they're not. They're this not. is we all about agribusiness. Fa- exactly. We talk to family farmers who don't like to just watch animals go insane in misery for the entirety of their lives and, you know, then strip them of their flesh and market. Sorry, it's just, it, this is so foul to me, <laughs> this entire yeah. industry, that it's hard for me not to swear and get really descriptive about it. You. I just think it's absolutely gross. And I think it is really, really sad that, you know, you had this effort by a state to try to do something yeah. about the conditions under which animals are, are raised and slaughtered in this country. That's right. And now you have a powerful industry lobby group and a, the federal government siding with it to say, nope, you can't make us stop torturing pigs. You know, I only learned recently, and I mean recently like the last few months, that when chicks are born, um, the males and females are separated. The females become egg-laying chickens. The males are ground up in an industrial grinder. Alive. Alive. Yeah. Why? That's what, I don't know, man, but that's what you're paying for. You know, when I was living— just it, want to say that is what you're paying for yeah, that's every what you're time you for. buy these products in the grocery but store. In and other know- countries, in, in the Middle East, in Greece, they're they're raised uh, for food, yep. right? And you can go to the grocery store and you can buy a chicken or you can buy a rooster because they taste exactly the same. I don't know why we do something like that. It's it makes no sense to me. It's disgusting the amount of animal and human waste we will tolerate. So Stunning. that, again, some people can make a lot of money. That's right. And the rest of us can eat just disgusting food that makes us sick. That's right. So, yeah, I got upset. I got upset about that. <laughs> uh, well, that's, that's you know, <laughs> worth being upset over. It, it really is. Uh, there's all kinds of other stuff to talk about here, John. I don't know if you want to talk about this gun control decision. Yeah, you know, we'll get, get, into get into more, into detail more detail in this tomorrow. But the Supreme Court today came out with this um, this decision on, on uh, uh, carrying concealed weapons. And they overturned a New York law. Maryland had a similar law. Several other states had similar laws. California, D.C. Um, and this morning, with this decision, they made it legal for anybody in America, 18 years of age or older, not convicted of a felony, to carry a concealed weapon. Anybody. That's just wild. And you know, it's funny to me, you can't carry a concealed weapon into a political convention, right? I guess. You can't. Yeah. They have signs. The Republicans have signs out outside the entrances of their convention saying no concealed uh, weapons. Why well, not? Yeah. And also, why are you allowed to, well, I guess, you know, different, I don't know, can different, you know, you're not allowed to carry weapons within certain yeah. Uh, distance of a school and right. things like that. You can't take them into a courthouse. But like if states are not, this was about a New York state law. Yeah, it was a state so law. So states are not allowed to make their own laws governing and the conditions under which someone can carry a concealed weapon. Why should it. political conventions That's be right. able to? And you know, the interesting thing about this Supreme Court decision today is New York state had not banned people from carrying concealed weapons. What they What they did was they made you apply for a permit and you had to explain why you needed a concealed weapon. So the Supreme Court now today says 
Nobody needs any reason. All you all you have to do is just stick a gun in a holster and pull your shirt down over it. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't understand this at all. We are going to get into some more. Uh, have a further conversation also about this uh, news that we mentioned yesterday. The decision by the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals yes. to uh, overturn. A previous court decision and uphold Arkansas's particular Israel boycott pledge. Uh, there is already uproar in some quarters about this decision. Um, in Arkansas, the particular law in Arkansas requires state contractors to agree not to boycott Israel or to lower their prices by 20%, right? Which is they're not going to do. Nuts. Um, they said that this wasn't a violation of the First Amendment because, according to this court, boycotts fall under commercial activity which the state has a right to regulate. It's not expressive conduct protected by the First Amendment of the Constitution because all of this conduct is sort of happening behind closed doors. Um, it was the Arkansas Times that had brought this particular suit, uh, and its publisher says he's in talks with the ACLU on future steps. I'm not sure if they have announced that they are going to appeal this to the Supreme Court yet or not, but no, it seems not like that, that I've is heard. probably where it's going to yeah, be headed. Yeah, it has to. Um, and, you know, this is important because I think I think at last count, the last number I saw was that there are 33 states with laws like this on the books, not right. written in exactly the same way, but with this similar intent and similar effect. And so we are going to talk about the legal reading in this case tomorrow when we cover a bunch of other Supreme Court cases that we have mentioned. But it is remarkable that a majority of states in, in this country want to make sure anyone working with them is not engaged in any kind of boycott of another country that human rights organizations around the world and within Israel itself say is engaged in apartheid. So whatever legal fig leaf you want to slap on over this particular ruling, it's a remarkable position. To it be in. really is incredible. And I don't frankly care. How dare you boycott this country that, again, yeah. Amnesty International, right. Human Rights Watch, uh, Beth Salem, UN Rapporteurs, many, many organizations have said, no, 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 this, we're going to call it by its name. Uh, this is rightfully called apartheid, yeah, apartheid. And we used to get real mad about it. Right. Or at least pretend to, you know, eventually. Right. But now I guess they are all just engaged in some kind of anti-Semitic conspiracy right. to, to smear Israel. And God forbid... God forbid anyone go to address a university in Georgia and not sign a pledge that's not right. to personally boycott Israel. <laughs> a pledge that's not even worth the paper it's written on anyway. I will not allow myself to be pushed around by any state government which tells me what countries I have to support and what countries I have to oppose. Well, I guess you only got uh, whatever is yeah. 50 minus 33. Yeah. 17 <laughs> states I can states do can business in. There you go. I also want to real quick say, uh, a little confused about this Juul decision I don't by the FDA, this. which does not affect my life whatsoever, except no. that I do know people who are quite upset. <laughs> yeah. I've never, I have never vaped in my life. Uh, but the FDA has said Juul in particular cannot sell its kind of e-cigarettes. Uh, which I'm just going to call vapes, even though I guess they are slightly different things. The FDA says Juul didn't give them enough evidence that their products were safe. Whatever They probably aren't. Yeah. What is confusing to me is that there are a bunch of other e-cigarettes that have been allowed to remain on the market. And so I guess the FDA has decided that Juul in particular is worse than those. Or yeah, I guess does this have to do with, you know, how popular Juul became in, 
you know, I think it was after 2016, it had these mint flavors. It had these fruit flavors. It had like young uh, people in ads. It had a social media presence and young people started uh, buying these up. And then the FDA came in and said, oh, wait, 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 we don't we don't want you to right. do this. But Jewel pulled out, you know. It pulled its social media presence. It pulled all of its fruit and mint flavors in 2019. Um, there are still apparently open investigations into its marketing and its impact and whether they were deliberately targeting teens. I don't know if this is something the FDA took in, into account in making its decision or, or and what the rules are around that, but it perplexes me that Juul in particular is not allowed to continue selling products, but it's not that e-cigarettes or vapes are bad in themselves. And who knows, maybe they, they said something about chemicals leaching from the cartridges. Maybe the other guys don't have that problem. I yeah, don't know. I, it's going to be a run on jewels is, is all I can yeah. say. Yeah. I mentioned to you offline that um, I've got a friend from high school who swears by e-cigarettes slash vapes slash jewel. He was, he was a two pack a day smoker. Uh, he has a sweet tooth. And he migrated to Juul, and it's like, you know, bubblegum flavor and mm -hmm. raspberry flavor and whatever. He claims that this got him off of cigarettes. Mm -hmm. And now he's practically in tears that this decision. Well, this has been, I know we have to get to our next yeah. guest, but like this has been the thing. The FDA is sort of trying to balance whether these products are good in that they help adults quit smoking cigarettes. Right. Or bad in that. They help young people begin addictions that are not to cigarettes, but sure. to this sort of light version. I could understand that. Uh -huh. Don't ask me. I quit, finally. We got to go. We have so much more to talk about. We're going to try and squeeze it in later in the show. I, I have the things I want to say about the gig economy. But first, we are going to get a report from Europe from uh, one of our colleagues here. So we're yes. going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C., and we'll be right back. to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. European Union leaders are holding a summit today in Brussels, and at the top of the agenda is conferring EU candidate status on Ukraine. This would be a symbolic win for Kyiv, which is now in its fifth month of war with Russia. Moldova is also being considered for membership, but candidate status does not confer EU membership, which could be decades away. Ukraine's candidacy must have unanimous support, and it's unlikely that any of the 27 EU member countries will vote no. In fact, the European Parliament this morning voted in favor of Ukraine's candidacy. Meanwhile, the 48th annual G7 summit will be held in Bavaria beginning on Sunday, where the leaders of the U.S., the U.K., Germany, Canada, France, Italy and Japan will meet to discuss sanctions against Russia and both medium and long-term reconstruction of Ukraine. We're joined from Brussels by Sean Blackman. Sean is the co-host of By Any Means Necessary, which you can hear right here on Radio Sputnik Monday through Friday from 2 to 4 p.m. Welcome, Sean. John, Michelle, thanks so much for having me. We're so happy you could join us, Sean. We know that uh, you flew all night long and you just arrived in, in Brussels. 
Um, as I mentioned, the European Parliament this morning endorsed Ukraine's EU candidacy, although it could be years, maybe decades before Ukraine is an actual member of the European Union. Beyond the symbolism of supporting Ukraine in a time of war, why would the EU want Ukraine as a member? What does it bring to the table, do you think? Well, John, I think the first thing we have to ask ourselves is why does Ukraine need uh, a symbolic victory in achieving? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, that's a good question. What, what, what we're told in the United States and in the West is that, you know, Ukraine has been stomping a mud hole in Russia and walking it dry. Well, if that's true, then how come we continue to see these positively just putrid amounts of money coming from uh, the U.S. government being sent to Ukraine? Basically, endless money. Meanwhile, we don't even have enough formula for our babies here in the United States. So why do they need this endless money, these endless weapons and, and resources and things like that? And uh, uh, also... When you consider it, why does it need this sort of thing? Well, I think it sort of implies that the narrative that we've been hearing about the Ukraine war uh, in the U.S. and in the West is probably quite a different story, which is certainly something that we've been uh, making a point of on uh, uh, by any means necessary. Mm -hmm. In truth, I think Ukraine needs a, a, a symbolic victory because a, a military victory is, quite frankly, uh, not that likely. Another thing I forgot to mention is if Ukraine was doing so well, then why are all these Western leaders seemingly hell-bent on making this yet another forever war? And maybe we can get into that deeper uh, a little bit later. But in terms of what Ukraine brings to the table, I mean, my perspective, um, further ensconcing Ukraine into the kind of EU-NATO uh, milieu, if you will, mm -hmm. this sort of uh, firms up its position as a bludgeon of U.S. imperialism against Russia, which we have to remember is what this is all about. The war in Ukraine, in truth, is actually a, a, a U.S. proxy war with Russia. And if that were to happen, if there were to be an open conflict, between these two uh, nuclear powers, well, then that could have devastating consequences for humanity as we know it. And that's not uh, uh, an exaggeration. Uh, Ukraine foreign minister, Dmitry Kaleba, um, speaking of this candidate status, said that it will, quote, draw a line under decades of ambiguity and set in stone. Ukraine is Europe, not part of uh, uh, the Russian world. You know what I mean? And yeah. So, uh, it, I just think it's interesting when we see leaders like uh, uh, Jens Stoltenberg, the uh, right. secretary general of uh, the United Nations, sort of uh, talking about how basically um, – uh, I said – I meant a secretary uh, – NATO. You know, right. Basically saying that the economic fallout from the Ukraine war is worth it simply to defeat Russia. And despite how long it may take and despite um, the economic impact that it's worth it. I mean, he recently said in a statement, quote, we must prepare for the fact that it could take years, speaking of the war. We must not let up in supporting Ukraine, even if the costs are high, not only for military support, also because of rising energy and food prices. Now, the Marxist in me can't help but look at this from a class standpoint, because Jens Stoltenberg, it's easy for him to say that because he's not going to feel the squeeze of <laughs> uh, uh, this rise in fuel and food and things like that. It's the overwhelming majority of working and oppressed people, not just in the United States, feeling pain at the pump 
and seeing an increase in food prices, but all over the world. I mean, the sanctions against Russia has exacerbated uh, uh, the world hunger crisis uh, uh, because of the issue of wheat and things like that, and of course fuel, as I mentioned. But all of that is is all well and good. It's the price of doing business. Mm-hmm. For these uh, major ruling class leaders like Jens Stoltenberg, like Joe Biden, and like uh, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who, who basically made um, the same statements and echoed those sentiments during a recent surprise visit to Kiev, saying that Europe has to avoid, quote, Ukraine fatigue. So, in other words, it feels like Boris Johnson is saying, hey, everyone, strap in. Uh, we're going to be doing this uh, a war for a while, and we can't get tired of it because, you know, uh, you know, according to that line of thinking, it's noble for X, Y, Z reasons. And so what I think we're really looking at when you take a step back is uh, a United States that uh, has become quite accustomed and quite comfortable of being the world's major superpower and being the police and controller and the entity that determines the politics and trajectory of the people's lands and resources of the earth is trying desperately to hold on to that and has for years seen Russia and before that the Soviet Union as a, a serious threat uh, to that control. So I think that the um, this, this, this uh, uh, candidacy of uh, Ukraine to the EU, which they got fast-tracked on, by the way. I don't know if I— Oh, yeah. Because you, you, usually it takes years just to get from applicant to candidate. And as you mentioned correctly, John, it can take years to get from candidate to member. But, you know, Ukraine's sort of uh, uh, significance to the interests of Washington, I think, is what has uh, put them on this uh, sped-up path. Now, whether or not that'll result in membership, I think, remains to be seen. Sure. But the, the, the very public uh, uh, sort of speeding up of the process, I think, is, is noteworthy. Um, you, you said something that's very important. You said at the, at the start of your comments that this is a proxy war, that the United States is, is fighting against Russia. I agree wholeheartedly. I think this is a proxy war. And as part of that proxy war, we're seeing sanctions upon sanctions upon sanctions. We know from the media that EU leaders are going to discuss additional sanctions on Russia over the course of this summit. Um, what else is there left to sanction? I mean, other than sanctioning individual Russians, have you heard anything about what what these EU leaders might be might be talking about uh, that would target the Russian economy, which actually has been doing pretty well? The Russian economy has been doing well. You know, the funny thing about a sanction regime that I find, certainly I know this is the case with the United States, there's always something else to sanction. You know, yes. no matter how trifling it might be, no matter how small it might be, um, there's always something else to sanction. And, and as we know, if you look at the cases of uh, Venezuela or Cuba or uh, Syria or Iran or the DPRK, we know that although, um, you know, uh, the U.S. and the West and the EU, they try to make it out like these sanctions will only impact uh, uh, sort of individual government officials. But in truth, this is something that impacts the, the, the masses of people. And I think there's a, a connection to that when you talk about um, the, the, the health of uh, the Russian economy and another meeting that's happening at, at the same time as the European summit, and that's the virtual meeting of BRICS, which is being uh, hosted by China, which is sort of the—they currently hold the revolving uh, presidency 
of BRICS. And, you know, they're going to advocate for including Argentina and things like this. But what makes this uh, virtual meeting of BRICS noteworthy is a couple of things. Number one, it's sort of the highest, the most high-profile international event that Vladimir Putin, excuse me, has taken part in ever since the invasion of Ukraine uh, back in February, Mm -hmm. three days ago at this point, if I'm not mistaken. And this week, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin said that banks from BRICS nations can connect freely to the SPFS, the System for Transfer of Financial Messages, which is a Russian sort of alternative platform to SWIFT, which it got kicked off of um, earlier in this year. And what's even more interesting than that to me is how Putin said that um, uh, uh, work is going on right now amongst the BRICS governments um, to try to uh, create an international reserve currency. Mm-hmm. And so what what's clear now is honestly what's been clear from the beginning, and many people pointed this out. Many people have been pointing to the folly of the U.S. Uh, sanctioning Russia in this way and trying to uh, attack Russia's economy out of this attempt to uh, isolate Russia. It, it has only, you know, benefited Russia, strengthened the uh, relationships uh, amongst Russia and the BRICS uh, countries and other countries in um, the, 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 the global south and uh, further isolated Washington, not mm-hmm. you know. And I also want to bring in the fact that we're having this conversation just a couple weeks after the Biden administration suffered an embarrassment at the uh, Summit of the Americas. Right. So because it uh, did not include countries like Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, uh, supposedly for reasons of quote-unquote democracy, I mean, you had major uh, governments in the region pull out and just boycott the thing altogether. I mean, namely, uh, the Mexican government under President uh, Lopez Obrador. And then some of the governments that did show up, the representatives, they criticized the situation in their speeches. And so all these things taken together, I think, points to um, not only, uh, frankly, an impotent uh, Biden administration, uh, both at home and abroad, but also a deteriorating U.S. empire that knows it's on the decline and is fighting like hell uh, to stay alive. But it seems like every new brash move that they take, that they're used to working like gangbusters, Mm -hmm. they only get weaker. You are uh, in Brussels, as I said at the start of the the segment. You're going on to Munich uh, in the next couple of days to cover the three-day G7 summit that begins there on Sunday. The Russia-Ukraine war, of course, is at the top of the agenda. But the Wall Street Journal says that, yet again, additional sanctions against Russia um, uh, are going to be considered. But this article in the Wall Street Journal goes on to say that sanctions beyond what the West has placed so far may hurt the West as much as they hurt Russia because of inflation. And frankly, inflation is not a problem in Russia right now like it is in the West. What are you hearing about plans for that summit? And have any decisions already been made, Sean, um, that leaders would then just agree to over the weekend? Or are we going to be seeing debate and discussion and perhaps even disagreements at this summit? I think it's most likely that we'll see uh, debate around these questions. And that Wall Street Journal piece that you're speaking to, I think, is correct, except, I mean, for me, I think that the West has already harmed itself 
um, by by sanctioning mm-hmm. to the extent that it has. Because again, that just sort of put uh, Russia in in a stronger position to try to develop some alternatives to the hegemony of the the, the U.S. dollar. And so here again, we we see how the U.S.'s attempts to isolate this country and, and really trying to coalesce the world's governments uh, with the U.S. against Russia, just sort of failing miserably. I mean, they really, you can tell that they really didn't uh, count on that. I mean, the U.S. likes yeah. on and on about, excuse me, how the, the so-called international community um, uh, uh, supports them in this, like, anti-Russia campaign. But that's not exactly true. I mean, in reality, it's it's who I call, you know, Uncle Sam and his little friends. It's the U.S. and their junior partners and vassal states that are uh, uh, really supporting this. And what I think the American people need to be clear about, because we get no context or history about these things to better understand them in the mainstream media, um, is that the U.S. throughout this process has fundamentally been asking countries, has been asking governments to act contrary to their own interests. Mm-hmm. to join in Washington's anti-Russia crusade, and everybody is just not down with it. I mean, I think of South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, who's critical of the, of the U.S. Oh, yeah. orientation towards Russia, and also uh, India under uh, Narendra Modi, to the point that Biden had to go and ridiculously suggest to the Indian government that they didn't need um, uh, Russian oil and things like that. And wouldn't you know it, uh, not long after India decided that it wasn't going along with the U.S. on the Russia issue, now we see uh, Anthony Blinken and all these other fools uh, suddenly concerned about uh, uh, human rights abuses in India. So I guess it was all cool before. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, right. He was a champion of human rights before uh, they made this decision. And so it's just the most uh, transparent sort of thing. And so it's hard not to feel a kind of desperation from uh, Washington as it concerns these issues, because as powerful as the U.S. still is, as it takes a look around, it seems to be finding its friends fewer and fewer. Sean, one of the issues that uh, it's easy to sort of overlook in this summit because everybody's talking about the war is uh, the environment. Are you hearing anything about new environmental issues being considered at the summit, especially in light of the fact that that just a couple of weeks ago, the G7 agreed uh, to refuse future funding for new fossil fuel projects being done in non-G7 countries? You know, I've been thinking about that very question myself, John, because when considering the G7 and the climate, I mean, I immediately think of last year's Mm. G7 climate. Mm -hmm. You know, these countries said they were going to do X, Y, Z about the climate and didn't do anything. The only right. thing that they'll do is this little stuff to, you know, paint around the corners, like like what you just mentioned, this little stuff that sounds pretty good, but doesn't, you know, really get at the root of the issue. Because the truth is, is that the, it's the big capitalist countries that are responsible largely for these issues we're seeing in climate change, just because of the nature of capitalist production, mm-hmm. about how it's not uh, uh, regulated in the way that it should be, because to regulate it would be to infringe on their ability to maximize profits, which is the whole point of uh, uh, the system. And they have absolutely no intent of doing that. Mm-hmm. It's just wild because they're all, you know, like a lot of these world leaders like Joe Biden, as I like to say, they're fools, but they're not stupid. They know very well 
um, about how serious the climate situation is. But, you know, because of their class position and their fealty to, to capitalism itself, they refuse to, uh, to actually do anything to change it. And so I think regardless of what uh, is discussed as it pertains to climate at the G7 and what they say they're going to do, I just doubt very seriously, given recent history, that they're going to take the critical steps needed to really address um, yeah. uh, the issue of climate, because to seriously and critically address climate change would be to make some profound shifts in uh, uh, the systems and institutions that, that govern uh, not only the U.S., but the West as we know it. And so until, uh, I mean, it's almost like the issue of, you know, uh, mass shootings and things like that. I mean, all we get is this uh, mealy mouth stuff whenever we have these incidents and the problem never seems to get really solved. Similarly, because the systemic root of it all is not addressed and I don't mm -hmm. think it will be. And so I personally think that um, it will take sort of a militant people's movement in the streets to really fight uh, for what we need as it regards climate change, because the people that we call leaders are obviously not interested in doing that. Sean, a moment ago, you mentioned Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Um, he's been invited to the G7 as an observer. Uh, the G7 is supposed to be the world's biggest developed economies, but China is far bigger of an economy than, let's say, Italy. Uh, which is a member of the G7. Why aren't the Chinese invited to uh, to something like this? What's the point of keeping the Chinese out of the conversation where the Indians are invited in? Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned China and Italy. I immediately thought about how, you know, Chinese doctors went to Italy to uh, help contain uh, coronavirus when Italy couldn't get any help from its European mm -hmm. But I think the reason why we, we, we don't see uh, China there is because, you know, the, the peaceful rise of China and its development as an economic powerhouse on the global stage, uh, not through wars of occupation, not through nuclear bombing, but through partnerships with uh, programs like the Belt and Road Initiative and things like that. And this is a threat to uh, the West and sort of, I mean, here you have this uh, socialist country in Asia, right? Right. Is uh, in the passing lane, as Dr. Gerald Horn would say, <laughs> in terms of uh, becoming the economic superpower on uh, the world stage. And see, this is precisely why this is precisely why uh, U.S. President Joe Biden uh, made it a point earlier this year or at one point. I can't remember if it was this year or not. But this is why he was talking about how, you know, basically the chief conflict is between uh, democracy and autocracy. Right. Mm -hmm not the Cold War. It's not the war on terror. It's now democracy, as evidenced by, you know, the gallant uh, uh, Euro-American West versus the autocracy of the, these big, bad uh, countries like China and Cuba and so on. You know what I mean? Right. So in terms of why China is not invited to meetings like this, it's because out of uh, uh, a fear that China will actually surpass its uh, Euro-American counterparts, which flies in the face of the entire project of uh, U.S. imperialism. This is this is a big part of why we have, of why the U.S. is carrying out this new Cold War against China and Russia, because those are the two countries that it sees as its uh, main rivals in different ways. And so Washington does not want to give up its position as uh, uh, the hegemonic power on the world stage. And so it's going to do everything it can. It's going to exclude and lie and manipulate 
and sanction and try to carry out regime change and do all these sorts of things to try to hold on to its place. And while I don't think uh, U.S. imperialism is going to uh, uh, fall tomorrow, I think it's very aware that it's in decline and is almost like a cornered animal trying desperately to survive. Sean Blackman, thanks for joining us from Brussels. Sean is the co-host of By Any Means Necessary. You can hear that excellent show right here on Radio Sputnik Monday through Friday from 2 to 4 p.m. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and come right back. Stay tuned. on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we want to dive right into a couple of significant economic stories, both international and domestic. Joining us for this conversation is Dr. Richard Wolf. He's professor of economics emeritus at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He's a visiting professor in the graduate program in international affairs of the New School University in New York. He's got a weekly show, Economic Update. You can find his books. We're delighted to have him here. Dr. Wolf, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I want to talk about something that came up in the last segment just now, uh, and that is uh, these potentially really significant uh, changes in BRICS. Russian President Vladimir Putin at a BRICS business forum said the group is working on creating an international reserve currency based on a basket of BRICS country currencies. Uh, The idea seems to be that this new global reserve currency would present an alternative to the IMF's special drawing right, which is not a kind of money, but a, a sort of unit of an IMF account, like a claim to some kind of currency. According to Putin, BRICS is also working on new mechanisms for international payments. And I wonder how significant would it be to have a new global reserve currency? Well, it would be a very significant change indeed. Um, And following what Sean was saying a few moments ago on your program, Mm -hmm. um, and he's quite right about this, uh, this is part of what is very clear now, which is a relative decline of the United States as a global hegemonic, a global empire, if you like, uh, the replacement over the last 75 to 100 years of what the British empire was before that. Mm-hmm. Um, the United States has had a charmed run as an economic system. It has grown more or less over the last 75 uh, or 100 years. It has made its currency, the U.S. dollar, the global currency. It has set up systems of payments that are used all over the world Mm -hmm. uh, at a time when there's more international trade than this planet we live on has ever seen before. So it's been a total dominance by the United States, which coming out of World War II was an enormously dominant economic unit. It's nowhere near as important in the world today as it was back then, but it is trying hard, and it has been for quite a while, to either slow or stop or even in some folks' minds reverse its decline. And it hasn't gone real well, uh, to 
say the least. And, you know, it's had reverses. It tries not to admit them. It tries to distract attention from them. But that gets harder and harder to do. Uh, remember, the last four wars that we have fought, we, the most powerful military force in the world, um, invading and taking over Vietnam for a while, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Libya to a lesser extent, but a similar story. And in every one of those wars, the United States did not prevail. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a polite way of saying was defeated. Uh, that's a very powerful reality. What you're seeing with the BRICS, uh, and just to remind everyone, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, mm. those are the five members of the BRICS. Uh, this is an extremely important, separate, and increasingly antagonistic block in the world economy. And just to let everyone understand the dimensions to see how important it is, what these folks are doing, is if you put together those five countries, and by the way, there are now other countries that have a kind of informal, friendly relationship with the BRICS, mm -hmm. but if you just limit yourself to the five that I mentioned, uh, they account for just shy of half of the population on the planet Earth. So you're mm -hmm. talking about uh, a population in those five countries that is 10 times the size of the United States in terms of, of population. Mm -hmm. And when you look at their GDP, the total value of goods and services that those five economies produce, it's about $23 trillion most recently and compare that to the United States, which is $21 trillion. It's a bigger economic unit uh, in the world today than the United States. So if they're doing stuff that is antagonistic in one way or another to the United States, uh, you're talking about half the people of the world with a combined economic uh, power greater than that of the United States, mm -hmm. having that kind of a force arrayed against you is very serious. And I not only are they trying to develop their own global currency and their own global payment system, thereby freeing them from the reliance on the US dollar mm -hmm. and the United States, which weakens the United States' global power, and strengthens theirs. But to drive this home for everyone, um, those five countries have clearly sided with Russia, apropos Ukraine, mm -hmm. not with the United States, not with Western Europe. Uh, Russia has been able to stop sending oil and gas uh, to large parts of Europe because it can sell the oil and gas uh, to India, mm -hmm. to China, other members of the BRICS, as well as other parts of the world, mm -hmm. too. Uh, but that gives Russia flexibility. It gives the West a whole new set of problems. It means that the war in the Iraq, excuse me, in the Ukraine uh, is very open as to which way it's going to end up. Uh, and the United States may come to regret badly having thrown as much weight into 
that side of it without understanding that it wasn't going to get the support of the BRICS. And by the way, make no mistake, Washington tried to get that support and it was turned down. Let me ask you, Dr. Wolf, uh, just to explain, in in the U.S. mainstream media, institutions like the World Bank and the IMF are presented as just sort of neutral global lenders. And so I wanted to ask if you could give us a sense of why these countries would want alternatives to the IMF. Yes, uh, the IMF and the World Bank were institutions set up at the end of World War II. Uh, And everything was new at that time. Uh, the enormous economic and political power that had been wielded by the only two, let's call them halfway competitors of the United States at that time, which were Germany and Japan, they were both defeated in World War II. So they were basically out of the picture. Russia, even though in American media, there's no understanding of of that country at all. Mm. Um, Russia, again, just to give you the numbers now so you can get a perspective, the GDP of Russia, the total amount of goods and services produced in the most recent year in Russia is about one and a half trillion dollars. In the United States for the most recent year, it's about 21 trillion, as I said a minute ago. Mm. So, a economic struggle or a political struggle. This is David and Goliath here. One is a is a mouse and the other one is an elephant. Mm. Uh, the notion that we are in some great struggle with an adversary who's comparable to the United States simply assumes that no one has done the homework to actually mm. look at this situation. Mm. Maybe Russia is a political a critic or a political opponent, maybe even to a limited extent, a military one. But Russia has never been, from the day of its 1917 revolution to today, has never been a serious economic competitor. And they're angry because they participated, the Russians did, because after the United States, they were the one with the strongest military at the end of World War II. They participated in setting up what were supposed to be peace-bringing, peaceful international institutions, including the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, which should not become tools of anyone against the rest. The criticism coming from Russia now for decades, but likewise coming from Asia, Africa, and Latin America, is that those institutions have served the rich and the powerful. Mm -hmm. Number one, the United States, uh, and number two, Western Europe allies of the United States, Britain, France, Germany, and so on. And that therefore, uh, the appeal for them to stop doing that fell on deaf ears. The notion that they always supported capitalism without criticism, and by the with the strongest capitalists here in the United States to start off with, means that they have nurtured the hope these BRICS countries for a long time, and I don't I don't doubt for a minute that an overwhelming majority of the countries in the United Nations, if given half a chance, would say yes. We should not have the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund 
either we shouldn't have it at all, or we should have a comp competitor institution that mm -hmm. we could choose to go to so that we wouldn't all have to go to the only institutions like that. Mm -hmm. And the Chinese particularly have been leading the charge in recent years to create alternatives. They now have the, an alternative to the World Bank. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative of China is, in effect, an alternative. Mm. Uh, money is being lent by China. And by the way, it, I, I keep referring to China because it is the big new reality in the world. More than anything else, China is revolutionizing the world. Again, let me give you the simple numbers. If you recall, I said... Uh, the GDP of Russia is 1.3, uh, 1.5 trillion, and the GDP of the United States is 21 trillion. Well, what's the GDP of China? 15 trillion. It's the only one anywhere close mm -hmm. to the United States. It's way bigger than any European country, and it is gaining on the United States literally with every day. Their current uh, growth rate is, as it has been for decades, three times the speed of growth of their output of goods and services compared to that of the United States. So they have been trying and they have been succeeding. And now that the United States, this is how they look at it, but we have to take that into account because thinking that the rest of the world's perspectives don't matter, if that was ever true, it certainly isn't true now. And in their view, the BRICS view, the Chinese view particularly, uh, the United States is going to war in Ukraine, not because it cares much about Ukraine. Mm -hmm. This is a war against Russia, which leading American politicians, including Biden and uh, Defense Secretary Austin and so on, they basically said it. This is a war to weaken Russia. Mm -hmm. Well, Russia is a close ally of China. No one in China misunderstands that this is an American military action that targets China indirectly, Russia directly, and the BRICS, all of them indirectly. And it is part of the rise of that part of the world economy at the same time that the United States portion is shrinking. And the real question, the only real question of international affairs right now and for the foreseeable future is whether the United States is determined to fight militarily, economically, politically. Just take a look at the sanctions program uh, being used to fight against Russia right now. Are we going to proceed adversarially in conflict or are we going to work out a deal? It's like what happens among the competing oil companies. Are they going to destroy each other so each of them fights to be the dominant player or are they going to work out an accommodation so they don't end up destroying all of them for fear of what it might mean to try the alternative. And I, I'm here to say to people that are paying attention, there are many, many forces in the world, here in the United States, absolutely across Europe, that are very, very dubious about the Ukraine war because of what I've just said. Mm -hmm. They are much more interested 
in working out an accommodatable arrangement. And if I could give an example from the American history, our own history, you know, we broke away as a nation from the British Empire by means of a revolutionary war in 1774, five and six. And when the British tried again to subdue the United States, having been defeated in the Revolutionary War. You know, we had another war with Britain called the War of 1812, and the British were defeated again. They had to lose twice in major wars before they realized there was a different and a better way to work things out. Mm -hmm. And they not only accommodated the United States, but the United Kingdom and the United States became allies. That is an alternative way, but there has to be the political will to secure it, to find it, and to work it out. And what we still have in Washington, in both political parties, is a clear majority of people who haven't yet been willing to face the reality of decline, who still live 50 years ago as if we were the United States coming out of World War II, uh, king of the hill, all of that is over, and it's a very dangerous thing to have the kind of disconnect we now have between the reality of our economic situation and the fantasy life of everyone from Mitch McConnell uh, to... Dr. Richard yeah. Wolf, I'm hoping we can ask you one more question about domestic economics on the other side of this break sure. we're coming up on. This is Dr. Richard Wolf. We're going to come back. I'm going to ask him about Jerome Powell on the Hill, and then we'll get into a whole bunch of other stuff in our second hour here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C., and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, continuing our conversation with Dr. Richard Wolf, Professor of Economics Emeritus at the University of Massachusetts and a visiting professor in international affairs at the New School University in New York City. We've been talking about uh, some sort of international uh, financial movements that could have very serious consequences. But I wanted to get in one question about what is going on here in the United States, Dr. Wolf, and, and ask you about what is happening uh, as the United States uh, attempts or pretends to try to control inflation. We had U.S. Federal Reserve Chief Jerome Powell testifying before a Senate panel yesterday. He's going to talk to the House today. And of course, he's talking about inflation and the Fed's efforts to bring it down. And it is funny to me to see all of this reporting on, you know, you have Powell saying, look, we don't want to cause a recession, but it's possible. We have Powell saying price stability is the bedrock of the economy and the Times warning that, you know, either the Fed uh, goes too hard, raises rates too fast and triggers a recession accidentally, or the response will be too tepid and the Fed won't restore price stability and high inflation will become entrenched. Uh, and and sort of outside of these sort of marble columns where these conversations are taking place, you have people saying, hey, if this interest rate uh, fiddling is so risky, 
What about just controlling prices directly? It seems like if you're trying to control prices, you could just do that instead of employing all of these other indirect mechanisms that you're telling us could trigger a recession. And I wonder if you could talk about why that just doesn't get a discussion. Yes, I'd love to. And I'm very, very glad you brought it up. Because for those of us who study economics, and I've been an economics professor all my life, uh, listening to these, and I put it in quotation marks, leaders talk about raising interest rates, you would believe, if you listened, that that was the only available tool. Uh, and that we have to then uh, wring our hands and go, oh, goodness, will we do it enough? Mm -hmm. uh, will we do too much? Will we do too little? As if that was the only thing we could possibly do. Mm -hmm. And that's not true. And it is so untrue that I, I don't hesitate. It's lying. It's lying to the American people. It's lying to the media who either don't understand what's going on, and so they repeat the lie, or what is even more frightening, they do understand that it is not true, but it's what the government says, Republicans and Democrats alike. Therefore, we're not going to be the critics. So let me do it for you. Is the raising of interest rates the only way to deal with an inflation? No, that hasn't ever been true. I'm going to give you in a minute two examples from the United States where we didn't do that, where we did stop an inflation or prevent one, and we didn't have to do it with interest rates. The only mystery then, and I'll come to that at the end, is to explain, like you ask in your question, why in the world are we not discussing what we here in the United States have done about inflations other than play around with interest rates? And, and let me just preface this by reminding everyone, we just put the American working class through a really rough two and a half years. We hit them with the worst failure to deal with public health in the history of the United States. You know, mm -hmm. uh, let me remind you again, apropos of our discussion before, uh, China is a country with four times the population of the United States. We are much richer than China. I explained that. Mm -hmm. We have a more developed medical care system. I didn't mention that, but that's well known. Mm -hmm. And yet we allowed over one million people to die of a disease. Mm -hmm. What did the Chinese do? They had their own way of dealing with the disease. Their death rate to this point, get ready, 20,000 people. That's an awful lot of people to die, but it's a tiny fraction of a million. And what in the world is going on? Then we had an economic crash that put more than half the American working class out of work for at least some weeks or months during the last two and a half years. And we had this failure with public health and this economic crash at the same time. No American working class has had to go through two overwhelming crises like that at the same time. And when the two first two years of that two and a half years were over, we whacked our American working class with the inflation that we're going through right now, where you can't get formula for your baby, you can't afford your rent, uh, you can't, I mean, I, I won't go on. Mm -hmm. And now we're listening to our leaders say, 
you know, if it wasn't enough that we failed with the COVID and it wasn't enough that we didn't deal with the economic crash and it wasn't enough that we couldn't prevent or deal with the inflation, now we have an, an idea for how to cope. We're going to make many of you unemployed in a recession we expect to hit late this year or early next year. Mm -hmm. You know, that's how revolutions are created. Mm -hmm. When you treat the majority of your people in such a way. So, wow. So now let me get to what we've done in the past. I'm going to give my first example, drawing on a conservative. That's how bad this is. Richard Nixon, president, <laughs> gives a speech, August 15th, 1971. And here's what he says. We have a terrible inflation, which they did at that time. And I'm going to do something about it. Here's what I'm going to do. As of tomorrow morning, he gave a speech in the evening of that day. As of tomorrow morning, any business in the United States, large, medium, or small, that raises its price, here's what's going to happen. We are going to come and arrest you and throw you in jail. Mm -hmm. Any worker or any union that presses or pushes for a wage increase, we're going to do the same. If this thing was called, this policy, a price wage freeze. And guess what? Inflation stopped on a dime. Amazing. Turns, <laughs> yeah. It turns out that a businessmen and women in America did not like the idea of going to jail. And so they didn't <laughs> do what the government told them you can't do. <laughs> I'll give you a second example, this time a Democratic president, Franklin Roosevelt. We're in the early 1940s, beginning to be wound up to fight World War II. And Mr. Roosevelt's economists gathered around him and said to him, listen, uh, FDR, uh, we are moving vast amounts of resources in America away from producing consumer goods. Why? Because we need them to produce guns and missiles and tanks and planes and all the stuff you need to fight a war. Mm. And that means there's going to be a sharp reduction in the available supply of gasoline for your car, coffee, meat, sugar, and a whole lot of other things. Mm. And if we allow the market to work, you know what's going to happen? Rich people are going to offer more and more higher and higher prices because they don't want to be denied the scarce goods. Mm -hmm. And as the prices go up, all the middle and low income people will be unable to afford it. And so the market turns out to be what it always was, a peculiar institution that handles any shortage, whatever it comes up, uh, by giving whatever is short to the richest people so that rich people could buy the milk which was rationed in those days, uh, and give it to their cat. Mm -hmm. But a family mm -hmm. with children couldn't get the milk to sustain, uh, literally sustain the life of their family. And the advisors told Mr. Roosevelt, if you let this happen, this country will rip itself apart because the people in the middle and the bottom are going to be enraged uh, that they are being required to do without, while rich people who can get their kids out of being in the army and get themselves saved from the costs of war are in there buying up. And you know what the president did? He said, you're absolutely right. We will not have it. The market is hereby thrown to the side. 
and they published the government of the United States under a Democratic president with the agreement of the Republicans. They published what were called ration books. Inside each book, there were a bunch of stamps. And the way you got a gallon of gas for your car or a pound of coffee for your breakfast or anything else, you had to have ration tickets. Yeah. Money you couldn't use. You had to have the ticket. And Dr. guess what? Wolf. Yeah. I was going to say, I'll let you finish up. We have to let you go. I would really appreciate you giving us some examples of things that have worked in the past to counter exactly the problem that we face now and that have sort of shifted the suffering uh, off of the people who can can least afford it. So, uh, Dr. Wolf, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. That was Richard Wolf. He's a professor of economics emeritus at the University of Massachusetts. He's got a radio show, weekly update. You can find it all over the place. Always appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Very welcome. Glad to be here. Thank you. We're going to move on to some more important domestic issues. We are. Uh, we're going to talk about the airline industry. The airline industry is struggling mightily uh, right now under pressure from surging fuel prices, from labor shortages, soaring ticket costs, even bad weather. Um, it's resulted in the cancellation just in the past week, from last Thursday to today, of 14,000 flights. Oh, it's so scary. Can you imagine? I, I know you're going to travel. I'm on one tomorrow, and I'm very <laughs> nervous. Airline executives are warning travelers that air travel over the rest of the summer is going to be tumultuous. And uh, we just heard uh, word that British Airways has voted to go on strike. So it's only getting worse. We're going to talk about this with Keith Mackey. He's founder of Mackey International, an aviation consulting firm specializing in aviation safety, risk management, accident investigation, air carrier certification, and safety and compliance audits. These are all critically important issues. Keith, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. It's glad to be here. Boy, where do we even begin with some of these issues? We're hearing statements from airline executives apologizing to travelers. And blaming things like unscheduled absences in some work groups. I, I don't even know what that means. Or challenges with air traffic control. Those statements were made this morning, if you can believe it. What, what do these terms even mean? What, what does it mean to say you have to, you have to cancel flights because of unscheduled absences in some work groups? Well, oh, we've got a number of factors that are affecting the present situation. And uh, we may not even have time to discuss them all. We can begin by discussing the pilot shortage. We are short of pilots. Right. Historically, this uh, situation has been building for a number of years. Uh, back to around the middle 2000s, around 2005, everyone had to retire at age 60. Right. And then up 65. So we went five years with people that would have retired earlier continuing to fly. So the airlines weren't needing to hire younger pilots in that period of time because the airline was sufficiently staffed with people that would otherwise have retired. Now, COVID jumped in there, mm -hmm. the situation. It kind of shut everything down. Now the airlines are faced with a, a very bad situation. Their most senior pilots that get the highest pay aren't flying. So many of them were offered retirement packages that were quite hard to refuse. So we lost a lot of our staff due to early retirements. 
Mm-hmm. Now, COVID abates. We have more demand for pilots. We don't have the pilots coming up the way we used to. And that's for several reasons. We used to be able to hire relatively, I won't say inexperienced, but pilots with uh, oh, 500 to 1,000 hours experience that they'd gotten in the civilian world. But in 2009, we had a very serious accident up in Buffalo when a Colgan Air airplane crashed and killed everyone on board. And it was determined that the cause of it was pilot error. And it was affected by pilot inexperience. Uh-huh. Oh, the rules were changed. Now, airlines had to hire people with 1,500 hours experience. Well, if you go to aviation school, when you graduate, you're going to have maybe 250 or 300 hours, and that's not going to cut the mustard. So you've got to either get a job flying for corporation, teaching people to fly, uh, flying for a charter airline that doesn't have the 1,500-hour requirement, and these jobs are hard to get. So the result is we don't have a pilot pool out there in the civilian world. The military isn't really discharging many people now. Historically, after Vietnam and things like that, we had all sorts of military pilots. Sure. Lines could hire, but we don't really have that anymore. So we've created a situation now that isn't easy to rectify. There's a couple of ways that are under consideration. One is the current mandatory retirement age is 65. And the logic is brought up, well, why do we even need a mandatory retirement age? Because pilots are checked and tested usually every six months where they have to demonstrate their skills and abilities. And we've got uh, more than one pilot in the cockpit. So do we even need a retirement? And there's proposals now just to raise the retirement age to 67 Mm. or 70. Well, that would... uh, over the long run, perhaps help, but that's only going to stop the people who are coming up on retirement now that want to continue flying, right? put up with all the hassles that are occurring in the industry to want to stay on and stay those extra years. So there's not a real easy way out of the pilot situation. Well, let me ask you a question about that. One of the things that, uh, that I, I've noticed over the years, especially when living in the Middle East, is that with many of these Middle Eastern airlines, almost none of the pilots are citizens of of those countries. For example, if you fly on Gulf Air, which is the national airline of Bahrain, all the pilots are are British, or almost all the pilots are British. Some are Australian. Same with Gutter Airways. You get on a Gutter Airways flight, and they're British, they're American, they're this, they're that. They're not guttery, certainly. Um, what about the possibility of of bringing pilots, experienced pilots even, from overseas. Uh, is that a possibility? And what role does does pay play in, in the pilot shortage, do you think? Well, they're very good questions, John. And the reality is that, yes, these airlines, as you mentioned, use expatriates to uh, man their equipment. Many of them are very experienced pilots, and they're paid quite well. Mm. They're paid compensation enough to make them want to live outside of their native country right. to do this type of flying, which which is good flying. But then get on a little further east to developing countries, 
that are trying to put together airlines, and they're trying to train people with uh, perhaps a good record in uh, college to become pilots. And they'll hire people with uh, uh, good uh, scholastic credentials, Mm -hmm. put them through school, and they come out of flight school with minimum hours. And they're suddenly put in the right seat of these large jets and Uh uh, something else. And so we've got some airlines over there operating with very inexperienced people. So it's all a trade-off. There's really not enough experienced people to go around worldwide. And no easy solution uh, coming up that we can uh, quickly enable to solve the problem. You uh, you touched on something earlier, too, that I wanted to raise with you. Uh, the FAA says that airlines require about 10,000 new pilots every year to backfill uh, for retirements. But the airlines are able to hire only 5,000 new pilots a year. So we've got this ongoing shortage. I have a, a friend whose son uh, went to a four-year university to learn to be a pilot uh, he came out of that four years of university with only 300 hours of flight time. And then instead of becoming a pilot, he ended up becoming a, a drone operator. So are the airlines having to uh, to worry about things like that, too, where they think they have people in train or at least they see that in the in the universities, there are people in train who logically should enter uh, uh, careers in the airlines and then they go off and do something else? Well, with 300 hours, he had no choice. No. He filled his flying hours somewhere to cross that 1,500-hour uh, level to be able to hire, to, to work for what we call a Part 121, a normal air carrier as we all ride. Right. One of the most unpleasant things about flying is the way people are crammed onto planes like sardines. Every seat on every flight is sold. Do you see the problem getting worse with this lack of pilots? Does it mean that more passengers will be bumped, that people are going to have to sit and wait for longer periods of time at airports? Uh, do you see this being something of a domino effect? Well, of course, to make money, the airlines have to have what we call a high load factor. In other words, a high percentage of the seats filled. If they don't do this, then in order to survive, they have to charge more for their tickets. Right. Uh, accommodate the unfilled seats. So uh, high load factors and having all the uh, seats filled is probably something that's going to be with us for a while. And what they've done uh, since we're recovering from COVID, now we still don't need as many flights, nor can we staff as many flights and go from point A to point B. So what they do is they rec- they decrease the number of flights, which increases the load factor. And uh, airlines use a formula to determine uh, how many people will not show up for each flight. Mm-hmm. They try to overbook each flight a little bit, and sometimes that doesn't work because now we've got the people that we overbooked plus all the ones that were originally scheduled are all showing up, and the airlines have to pay denied boarding. Yeah. Which does the same thing in reverse. It cuts into their uh, profitability by having to do this. So the, the airlines are in a balancing act trying to fill all the seats and not uh, have to pay anyone who was scheduled but couldn't get on a flight. What do you think accounts for 
shortages elsewhere in the industry. Why are there shortages, for example, of air traffic controllers or even gate agents? How, how does something like that happen? Well, I think you can just carry it on to why are there people uh, not showing up to work in restaurants or other jobs? A lot of them are being paid to stay home, and they would rather not work rather than uh, get a job that they don't enjoy doing and, and having to do it. Would that be true also of of air traffic controllers, or are we are we looking at things like stress and long hours, uh, or, or are people just not going from the military uh, into uh, civilian air track uh, air traffic control? Well, that's a lot of it, and the uh, job of an air traffic controller is really a very difficult one. Yes, not everyone suited to do it. It's a high stress job. Your attention is diverted in many different directions. It's kind of like juggling. You have a lot of balls in the air with all the airplanes, and you can't forget one of them or get distracted and not do your job. So there's not that many people, really, that are uh, talented enough to do it or of those who are inclined to do it. They would rather do something else. So finding air traffic controllers that are good and qualified is an ongoing situation. I wanted to ask you also, what do all these shortages of personnel mean for safety uh, in the industry? Uh, we haven't really heard of any problems in uh, in airline safety, but it seems like if if everybody is is stretched as thin as they are, there there something has to give at some point, does it not? Of course, we have duty time. You, know, you can only work so many hours straight or so many hours in a 24-hour period, and we have to follow those rules. Now, uh, if the rules are, file, are followed, in theory, we don't have a safety problem. But uh, having people that are pushed to the limit certainly doesn't do anything to enhance safety. We'll put it that way. Sure. Sure. And do you think other countries are are facing the same kinds of challenges that the American airline industry is facing? Are they dealing with pilot shortages and, and problems with air traffic controllers and canceled flights and all the things that we're reading about here? Yeah, to a varying extent, it's certainly a worldwide problem. We're not huh. the uh, we're not the only country that's having these issues all around the world. There are canceled flights and the, the same difficulty on different levels that we're having here. Okay, personal question. <laughs> if you had a choice between a shorter flight through Cairo on Egypt Air or a longer flight uh, on an American carrier, which would you take? Well, I know the way American carriers work. I've been a part of the industry for a long time, and I've got a lot of confidence in it. I can't say that Egypt Air would be any worse but because I don't know exactly how they do things, I would prefer to go with the American carrier because I'm familiar with the situation. And I don't mean that yeah. anything against Egypt at all. Sure, sure. I think you made my decision for me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. That was the voice of Keith Mackey. He's founder of Mackey International. It's an aviation consulting firm specializing in aviation safety, risk management, accident investigation, air carrier certification, and safety and compliance audits. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come right back.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here with Michelle Witte. Michelle, uh, just now during the break, you mentioned something that was very interesting that I missed uh, in the in the press today about the airline industry yeah about the airline industry yeah this just grabbed my eye and i don't i don't know much more about this story than the headline but the headline alone makes me think ah is Uh this is this okay you're gonna know what i'm talking about in a minute this is a politico.eu headline uh, that says eu champion airbus has deep links to chinese military industrial complex resort uh, report says I wonder who planted that story. Exactly. Right. I mean, Airbus and Boeing were fighting for years uh, in in international trade courts over who uh, was or was not complying with trade rules, who was getting an unfair advantage, blah, blah, blah. And mostly I think it was Boeing challenging Airbus, right? Yeah. Boeing Boeing alleged that Airbus was being subsidized by the French and I guess it was the British governments. Yes. Yes. And now it seems we might start a, a new page in this uh, this epic saga uh, that has to do with Airbus having problematic relationships with with China, so yeah, that call, I just thought, oh, okay, Boeing, all right, one one of your executives uh, has got the ear of somebody at Politico EU. Well, yeah. Boeing seems to have uh, plenty of money. You know, it it moved its headquarters several years ago from from uh, uh, Seattle, Washington, mm-hmm. where even the the senior senator there, Warren Magnuson, uh, in the nineteen 19- uh, 70s was known as the senator from Boeing mm-hmm. rather than the senator from Washington. Mm-hmm. They they moved to South Carolina, which is a non-union state, because they thought it would make them even more profitable if they didn't have to pay union wages. Right. Now they're moving to Arlington, Virginia, because of its proximity to Capitol Hill. Of course, of course. Interesting. Yep. Um, I know we have more to get to, but we have our next guest here on the line. And so I thought we'll just dive straight into this housing conversation, which is something John and I talk about quite a lot. We do indeed. Off air as well. We are wanting here to get into whether there is anything good among the bad and the ugly of the housing market in the United States right now. Joining us to help enlighten us on this topic is Ron Kluwer. He's Illinois market president for Gorman & Company, and he's an affordable housing advocate. Ron, great to talk to you again. You as well. And uh, and I thought we were going to try to make our next call positive. Well, I <laughs> think maybe for some people there is some positive, but I am I am always willing to be wrong here. And, you know, I have some specific questions for you about housing and the, the impact of different sort of social phenomena on the housing market. But I feel like we have to first sort of talk about the general, which is that we, you know, at least according to Fortune magazine, are in a housing correction, at least, and perhaps heading toward a crash. This story notes that after rising by 37% in the past two years, which is a crazy crazy amount to me, um, of uh, prices, right? Housing activity has now declined faster than it has at any time since 2006. And by activity, I am just assuming they mean buying and selling, maybe also uh, refinancing and things like that. In the meantime, the story notes that while housing prices are still expected to go up over the next year, and they're talking about uh, prices to buy a home, the increase is going to be less than previous years, and the number of areas where housing prices might go down has increased. 
it also shows quite a lot of counties across the country where homes are perceived to be overvalued. So I guess before we get into more detailed questions, what what is the macro housing situation looking like for the next year? Sure. So I think, um, you know, from a macro level, prices, I believe, are still going to continue to escalate, although the level of escalation certainly should slow down um, given the state of the rest of the market. Mm-hmm. Um, inventory is still at all-time lows, which is helping to drive up housing prices. Um, the desire to buy a house still remains, I believe, strong. However, the ability to do that with uh, rising costs, uh, you know, a, a lower portion of down payment and higher interest rates are going to continue to curb that. New construction, I think, is going to continue to be down. We stand in this this gap here where we have a an ongoing labor and material supply uh, constraints in the market. And, you know, of course, I briefly mentioned it, interest rates, interest rates, interest rates. Right. Um, we're seeing them go up. They'll go up to curb inflation, and it just reduces the amount of buying power the average consumer has. And we seem to be just really stuck in this um, inventory crisis, right, where it's, it seems to be agreed upon that, yeah, we just we just need more houses. We need more places for people to live in this country. And yet, you know, those processes are, are slow anyway, stopped by a bunch of external factors now and, you know, contributing to, I guess, continued price increases when you might have felt like under other circumstances, did, did we not have a supply problem? These, these uh, prices might not be so high. I, I, yeah, I think we um, we absolutely have a supply problem that's contributing to this. If you think back to the 07, 08, 09 um, Great Recession and the housing market collapse, we we went from producing in many communities hundreds or thousands of homes annually to almost zero, and in many communities, absolutely zero for mm-hmm. several years. Um, communities like mine, Rockford, is just starting to see housing permits rise over the last few years, and they're still just a handful compared to anything that we saw in the past in the, you know, 2000, say 2006, 2007 range. So the the supply has been, you know, inadequate, if you will, for a long time. However, I think between lending requirements, risk um, on the builder and, uh, and developer side has been high. And so that, that inventory bubble was just starting to move towards the positive production side. And then now here we are again with uh, high high labor costs, um, high material costs, and inability to get the uh, supplies of materials. It's, it's really, really going to um, put a damper on any new production. So it, it's going to continue to be a supply issue. The other question I, I had, I was interested in this MSN story from a couple days ago that shows that this urban exodus that began in 2020 uh, apparently shows no signs of slowing. And the story highlighted San Francisco, New York, and Washington, D.C. as major population losers in the last couple years, but implied that this was going on uh, across a lot of big cities, right? A lot of big cities in the United States and not just in the U.S., but overseas, or in Europe at least. And there was an OCD, um, OECD study that showed uh, the same thing. So they're bleeding people, and yet rents in these cities continue to increase. And so I wanted to ask, you know, a a couple of questions here. The first is, I wonder what we are seeing so far of the impact of this exodus on housing markets, where these people land, because there's such a huge difference in the price of housing across this country, with most cities being really expensive and 
suburban and rural areas being cheaper. Uh, certainly there are very expensive suburbs, but uh, they might be the exception. I would worry that an exodus of urban high earners who are now working remotely could really disrupt the markets where they land. And I wonder if we are seeing that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. There are several markets where you've seen folks coming in from a, you know, from a large urban center and they're, you know, they're really kind of putting a, a tight constraint on an already existing problem of low inventory because they're hedging out, let's call them the local buyer, right? The hometown buyer who's been working to save up money to buy the house and we're, you know, perhaps in a position to maybe do so now. And and that's driven up prices. It's it's eaten up inventory and it um it has created an opportunity where some just are still not available to enter the, or able to enter the housing market. Yeah, that doesn't seem doesn't seem great. And while that is happening Somehow, even though you have people leaving these cities at rates that we have not seen in years, rents in cities continue to go up. And you would think if the invisible hand of the market was doing the thing that we expect it to do, that an exodus of people from cities would make landlords lower their prices. But that is definitely not what is happening. And I I wonder if you can explain a little bit why not. Sure. I think there's a a number of contributing uh, factors, actually, if you go back to that post Great Recession space. You know, we've been talking about an affordable housing crisis now for decades, more so in the last probably five to six years. And what we saw during that is many households doubling up. Right mm-hmm. now, at the same time, we saw some really good uh, wage and uh, wage growth that did contribute to inflation, but it's still good for the household who's now making more money. Right, so long as other costs stay similar. Mm-hmm. However, wage growth and a need for more housing has been a challenge, particularly rental housing. Mm -hmm. So as folks are moving out of communities and going to suburbs or more rural areas, perhaps, the inventory that's left there is still in very high demand. And the residents who are left, some of them, many of them, you know, still have a little more income than they had before. And they're making that decision to make the move and become a little bit more independent because they're unable to now buy the home that perhaps they were, you know, staying with friends or work, uh, living with others to save up for. So they're, they, they want to get that independence, I believe, is a big contributing factor. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the inventory is still, you know, still um, in high demand. Vacancy rates are low. Rents are high. You know, the inflation of, of owning and operating apartments for those who are, are landlords is also increased. So, I don't see rents going down anytime soon. That is a bummer. (laughs) Ron, I want to come back to something that you said earlier when we were talking about supply. You noted that, um, you know, housing permits slowing down to a trickle, particularly in Rockford, Illinois, where you are are speaking to us from, um, and and only beginning to to resume to seeing seeing those permits issued uh, when we were hit with these Uh, the sort of global supply chain crisis and now this economic crisis we find ourselves in. But I wanted to ask you, you know, that to me implies uh, that there is a a political aspect to this problem. And I I wanted to see if that's the case and get you to explain it a a little bit more. You know, I mean, there is, of course, uh, the availability of supplies. There's the cost of labor. There are a lot of non-political issues that go into building more housing. Uh, but it also seems as though, you know, uh, decisions by local and state governments uh, come into play here and perhaps the role of, of powerful developers in, you know, deciding 
when and, and what kind of thing gets built where. So I wonder if you could talk about that and how it affects uh, the supply problem we have. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I always go to zoning and density requirements. We, uh, we saw a big um, move over, you know, the early 2000s to a reduced density. There, there was a belief people were living too close together. We were, you know, we were um, trying to put too many units in a given space and communities said, we, we want more independence. We want more freedom. We want these homes to be on larger lots. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that changed. But in some communities, that still has not changed. You know, our, our zoning code in Rockford is not reflective of that. Density is still a bad word. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you wind up having to, A, have more land, and then you have design principles or design guidelines that contribute to that. And we're working in a community where the front of a home must be at least 50% or greater of brick. There must be X number of windows on this, you know, the front side as well as the, mm-hmm. the sides of the home. And these things, you know, continue to add costs. Um, and they're written into zoning codes. On the other side, some funding sources are requiring, you know, and this is not a bad thing, but it contributes to all the other things, right? Um, higher efficiency homes. And, and I think it's great for the folks who live there. It's better for our planet, but it does add to cost. And mm-hmm. so you wind up with a lot of contributing factors that are driving up costs because of the requirements in order to build. Mm-hmm. Who gets those things written into zoning codes? Good question. Yeah. Yeah, so oftentimes um, you're going to find it is uh, potentially aldermen, potentially very vocal citizens who do not want to see projects happen Mm. because you can't say, I like that one, but I don't like that one. Mm. Or I, you know, I'm fine if it's market rate housing, but I don't want affordable housing. Mm -hmm. So what happens is these things get included so that the price is then a deterrent and you're unable to build some of those. You know, as an example, um, we had a zoning ordinance that required anything more than 50 units had to be a planned unit development, which, you know, in, in layman's terms, um, is just a much more difficult zoning requirement and a lot more latitude by planning officials to get involved in the, the design and development of a project. After, you know, after a uh, significant outcry over a affordable housing, they lowered that to 25 units or more. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, now you're bringing in a very small development, you have to go through a much longer and more arduous process to get the thing zoned and open yourself up to, you know, folks, uh, aldermen, um, city council members could be picking out the colors of your shingles. So it, it just becomes, you know, more cumbersome. Yeah, exactly. Oh. <laughs> I, I also want to say now. Look, now we're getting to the uh, to the potential positive, but I might have on rose-colored glasses here. Uh, as we are having this conversation, Jerome Powell is testifying before a House committee on on interest rate increases and their impacts. We could see another three quarters of a point percent rate increase next month. And I'm wondering, you know, obviously uh, all of these interest rate increases means uh, mortgage interest rates go up, but. Could it be that this is what actually cools the housing market in ways that could benefit regular people who are looking for homes? You know, I mean, I do know that uh, it could mean that people who own houses already are are seeing their investments losing some value. But for aspiring homeowners, uh, you know, is there some kind of silver lining here? What might we actually see? I know what we have only been talking about a slow in the rate of increase, 
which is not the same as prices going down. But, you know, is there maybe something positive in this market for some people? I think absolutely. And, um, you know, all joking aside about trying to be positive, I do think housing is always a difficult uh, discussion. However, um, I think that if the Fed is able to, you know, methodically raise rates at appropriate times, I think that we could curb inflation, which, you know, is a positive for the, you know, potential home buyer. Um, and the fact that home prices should go down, we should see a, a production increase. However, it's also you know, positive for all of us because we should see other prices go down, such as food and energy. And um, and to me, that's the positive I'm going to look positive. I'm going to look for. Mm-hmm. It'll be a while, um, but um, you know, the the days of zero to two percent interest rates or you know such low interest rates, mm-hmm. those aren't the norm anyway. They and, and we do need to remember that you know the norm is is not a two percent or three percent um, interest rate. Mm-hmm. However. They certainly do help improve the the condition of our housing market, and so there there's likely some return uh, to a much more robust housing market if we could get uh, inflation down. Mm-hmm. And let me ask your opinion of uh, this Fortune article, and the, you know the wh- where are we? Are we in a correction or are we in a crash? What do you think? It all depends on who you're going to believe, right? Um, and and what uh, what their interpretation of the tea leaves are. I think we're in a correction. Um, I would reserve the right to to see what happens over the next few months, but I believe we're in a correction. Mm -hmm. I don't see, you know, the potential for large-scale foreclosures in homes going forward. Interest rates and mortgages have relatively been decent over the last several years, and um, I I think there's protections out there. Um, But I I would say we're in a correction. Look at it, Rom. We did it. We managed to have a conversation about housing that wasn't entirely doom and gloom. I, I told you we could do it, buddy. That was Ron Kluwer. He's Illinois market president for Gorman and Company. He's an affordable housing advocate. Ron, we really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back with a few last headlines we don't want you to miss. Stay tuned. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. And in our last 15 minutes, there are a couple of things that I wanted to raise. First, there's breaking news, serious breaking news. Uh, Right now, as we're speaking, the FBI is raiding the home of Jeffrey Clark, former assistant attorney general uh, under Donald Trump. It was Jeffrey Clark who was an election denier who Trump tried to install as attorney general after Bill Barr uh, resigned. And practically everybody in the Justice Department said, if you make him attorney general, we're all going to quit. And so he never actually became the attorney general. Mm -hmm. But anyway, his house is being raided right now. Uh, The U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington uh, confirmed. I love this statement. It makes me want to smack somebody. It says, we can confirm that there is law enforcement activity in the vicinity of Clark's home. Okay, yes, I see that. Okay, all right. We don't know why this house is being raided. Hmm. Um, 
So we'll just have to wait and see. Now, there was another thing that I wanted to raise. And this is kind of in the creepy file. So a couple of hours ago, Amazon made this product announcement that they have trained Alexa. You know, Alexa, Mm -hmm. right? They've trained Alexa to speak to you in the voice of your dead relatives. No. Yes. If you can load one minute worth of, of a clip of a dead relative speaking to you, their AI can now replicate that voice and do everything in that voice. So what they just now, like an hour ago, yeah. what, what they showed at this conference in Las Vegas was this little boy saying, Alexa, can grandma finish reading me The Wizard of Oz? And then the Alexa starts speaking in the kid's dead grandmother's voice. I mean, yeah, that is creepy, right? I mean, people, of course, have pictures of their dead relatives. And, you know, in the age of, of uh, audio capture, right, we have recordings oh, yeah, sure. of, of deceased people. But there seems to be, is there something different between having a recording of someone saying something versus making that voice create whole new yeah. messages and, and, you know, translate ideas. It's, it's weird. It's, and I'll tell you another weird, thing it? along the same lines. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Andy Warhol. I have been since I was a kid. I stalked the guy in New York. I own three works by Andy Warhol and you know, I, I've been to the Warhol museum. I was, was there on opening night. I've been to his grave, et cetera, et cetera. So Netflix has this new uh, documentary series called The Andy Warhol Diaries based on the Andy Warhol Diaries that were published just after his death in 1987. But the voiceovers are all computer-generated voiceovers in Andy Warhol's voice. Mm -hmm. And it's just so creepy and so weird. I couldn't get past the first episode. Yeah, I don't. It it was just too weird. I have to say also that when they were introducing it, of course, I looked this up now, John, uh, the <laughs> executive who's introducing this uh, this new attribute says we are unquestionably living in the golden era of AI where our dreams and science fictions are becoming a reality. I just dream of maybe having a house. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Or like I right. dream of having more than three weeks of vacation a year, yeah. you know? I exactly. want to not have to pay $5,000 before I even set foot in a hospital for some kind of surgery. These That's are the right. dreams I have. I don't need my grandma to talk to me about the garage door opener. Right. I right. just, could we, could we maybe put some of this energy and money towards something else? And of course, it's futile asking Amazon to do this because the way that they are able to do their weird AI tinkering yeah. is because of the way our political economy is, yeah, is structured. That's right. So no use, but just for everybody else, I don't know. Let's, uh, let's, too weird. let's get to some other dreams, some, some other more basic dreams. Like what if like, what if kids didn't die of asthma in the United States? Right. Could that? That's right. a cool dream, right? I or like a that peanut allergy. Fulfilled. Why don't we work on that? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What if, you know, what about the dream of everybody making, you know, $20, $25 an hour? Mm-hmm. That'd be great. Yeah. Why aren't we working on that? A dream. But instead, dream. we're working on something where you can go home from work today and your Alexa is glowing yellow and you say, Alexa, play notifications. And then your dead grandmother says, Michelle, 
Three weeks ago, you bought a pair of jeans. Would you give it five stars? God, my, it just feels like an insult to my grandmother, <laughs> who is living, by the way. God it would bless be fun her. to just program my... Um, program just a revolving carousel of the the voices of your ex-boyfriends to tell yeah. you different things. <laughs> I have the most... Just like ride that emotional wave and see what happens. I have the most annoying, offensive ring on my telephone mm-hmm. assigned to my ex-wife. <laughs> <laughs> and I have other... I, I had another economic story that I, that I wanted to mention. Um, there was this FT story about how the gig economy might be drying up. This is from a couple days mm-hmm. ago, and it highlights these really steep drops in share prices of some of the big name gig employers in the U.S. and elsewhere, like Lyft, Uber, uh, Deliveroo, which I guess got to be Australian. I never heard of that one. And I mean, it's got to be know, Australian. It's like falling by more than more than half their value. Big drop offs. Wow. And the story says with larger economic conditions shifting, investors that have been propping up these mostly loss making companies are going to get skittish. They're not going to want to keep dumping into money, money into companies that do not profit. Uh, and simultaneously, gig work customers, you know, who, who are paying to have a, a bag of chips brought to their door, mm-hmm. will have less money to spend as inflation eats away at their much smaller paychecks. And so, you know, I am not going to be sad to see these companies go away, right? We could go back to cabs. It would be fine. That's fine I with don't me. know if I've ever, you know, like, uh, whatever. It, it, we don't need Instacart. Mm-hmm. Most people don't. No. Um, I, they refuse to pay the benefits that they should. They are actively working to undercut the employee protections that we do have in this country, meager as they are. Um, but these companies do employ millions of people. Yeah, they do. You know, and even if you account for some overlap, if you know, drive for Uber and you drive for Lyft or whatever, Uber employs a million people in the U.S., you know, Lyft employs 700,000, Instacart 500,000. These are the Amazing. figures that I was able to find this morning. So we we're talking about millions of people. And so the wreckage of this industry will not just be out of luck investors. You know, it's going to be real people who are relying on these jobs yeah. in, a, in a crappy economy. And so it has been wild on one hand to watch these unprofitable companies be propped up by investors for years so they can slowly undercut and take over the existing market. But that only works when money is cheap and people yes. can play with it. Yes. And I, you know, I just think we should maybe consider how ethical it is to, to allow that to happen, especially, you know, especially when you know conditions change. Yes. You know, there's the global geopolitics shift, economies shift. And, you know, the your, your money isn't as cheap sometimes as it is other times. And yet we just sort of allow these people to do whatever the hell they want to disrupt entire industries, employ people at these terrible jobs and then take even these terrible jobs away with nothing in place to to, uh, you know, to fill that gap. Right. As the original industries perhaps resurge. Like, again, these are people's lives. That's right. Uh, I just thought that I thought that was I thought that was really interesting. One, the perhaps, you know, potential demise of this industry and the impact it will have. You know, and apropos of of our last uh, interview just Mm -hmm. a a moment ago. uh, These gig workers, people who drive for Uber or or go shopping for Instacart or whatever, they've got to live somewhere. And when you live in a metropolitan area like Washington or New York or Boston or whatever. Um, 
it's almost impossible to be a gig worker and to uh, be able to afford housing. Oh, so I yeah. wanted to tell you that there was a there was a, a three hundred and seventy one square foot. Um, oh, is this this apartment in New York? Yeah. Did you hear about this? I, I saw the headlines. I thought I can't bear it. I can't bear to think about it. it it's in the East Village, which I hate because it's still gross and run down. And it's anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a studio apartment walk up to the third floor two thousand three hundred and thirty seven dollars a month and there was a long uh there was a line rather so long that people had to wait their turn for an hour and 15 minutes yeah just to get in to see this little one room 371 square foot apartment yeah it is it is untenable right it is it's untenable that's it imagine that people will continue to accept these these situations especially considering again this is man-made you bet it is created this right we created these situations wages don't have to be this artificially low you know we we have created the situation and we could undo it with some political will this is not there's there hasn't been Nobody a global has uh, catastrophe that has knocked us all back to the stone age no, you know you're right. we, we decided that we we would live under these conditions for the benefit of the few and i i really mm-hmm. hope that we change our minds about that pretty and, soon and listen to this real quickly i know we're running short on time the annual rent on this paltry alphabet city studio is $27,960. That's one year's rent, $28,000. It says, since financial advisors recommend spending no more than 30% of your income on rent, those clamoring for this apartment should ideally earn $90,000 a year. (laughs) The average salary in New York City is $69,182. Yeah. How can you possibly survive in New York City Making $69,000. No, you can. You but can. of course, we're all told, uh, stop buying your avocado toast and exactly. buy a house. Exactly. Oh, just, if you just tighten your belt for a few years when you're young, you can retire. And it's garbage. It's, it's untenable, as you said. Garbage. Uh, hey, guys, I don't want to scare you, but there's a new super gunnery in town. Yeah. Uh, there are a oh, couple yes. of fun medical stories that I've been uh, wanting to get to. We'll have to save. We'll have to save polio for tomorrow, John. Uh, but yeah, there's a new strain of super gonorrhea. There's the existing one from 2018, and now there's a new one in Austria. Cannot be treated uh, by antibiotics. Oh, cannot. Not just that it's resistant. Oh, nope. my God. I mean, as far as I can see, they have not been able to clear up this infection in this fella. Uh, so just cross your fingers, everybody. Oh, this is bad. <laughs> be a little bit careful. Be aware of it and go to the doctor if something feels weird. And that's all the wisdom that we have for you today. <laughs> We're going to leave you with super gonorrhea. <laughs> I want to say thanks to all of our guests and to our producers and engineers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and me, Michelle Witte, thanks to you for listening. We will see you tomorrow.